Welcome to Adventure Lifestyle and on today's episode we have the guests that our guests are most anticipating. That is none other than Dr. Les Higgins, author of Claim Your Wildness. Now, get set, let's dive straight in. Les, welcome to our podcast, Adventure Lifestyle. Thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. How are you? That's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Um, Les, look, I wanted to instantly touch on the fact that you were the author of the book, Claim Your Wildness, and I've managed to get myself pretty much, well, when we knew we were having you on um, as a podcast guest, I instantly wanted to you know, get through your book and, and, and work out you know, the messages that you're advocating because we, we feel as a, the message that you're advocating heavily aligns with some of the messages that we're trying to advocate through our podcast and you know our blog and, and our website, so to speak. But um, look, the, the moment I picked up your book, I was I was instantly interested in the image that you used on the front cover of your book. Um, it's, it's the image of the eye with a, with a vivid reflection of nature captured within the eye. Can, can I get you to talk about why you chose this particular image for the cover of your book, Claim Your Wildness? Oh, I'm so pleased that you, um, you found that an arresting image. That would be um, very gratifying for the designer of the cover, uh, Anita Williams, uh, a very talented uh, artist. Uh, Anita captured the, um, very much the essence of the story I'm trying to tell. If, uh, for the benefit of the listeners, if um, I can just um, make the point that it's an image of the eye and it's a very large image and it, at first glance what you can see uh, is a natural scene, a very picturesque one, reflected in the eye. Uh, it seems as if the eye is just reflecting what it's observing. Uh, and as I said, it's a wild and attractive forest scene. But when you look more closely, you'll see that the, 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 um, the scene is actually behind the eye. And it was placed there by Anita to represent the ancient wildness that's preserved in the workings of our brain. And um, the wildness that I'm talking about uh, has nothing whatsoever to do with getting into trouble with friends, neighbours, family and the police. It has everything to do with accepting and living with the exciting reality that we have been shaped by nature to respond to nature. And in doing that, we derive all sorts of enormous benefits. And so that is why the eye represents the internalizing, as it were, the taking in, uh, the embedding of nature, the imprinting of nature, in our brain. Uh, and Les, I think that, that image depicts it quite well. And thanks for the, the, you know, the articulate explanation of you know, why you've chosen that, that particular image. Uh, look, there's, a, there's another image which I also want to touch on, which is at the very start of your book as well. Uh, and it's a photo of your friend's daughter, Pepper, watching an echidna. Uh, and this echidna is burrowing away. Um, and, and Pepper looks completely captivated by this echidna. Again, can you, can you tell us why it is that this photo was used and the significance of this photo and you know, how it relates to the message that you're, you're trying to tell us within your book, Claim Your Wildness? And I guess okay. before we get into the question, 
I think all of us have kind of seen our children or observed children in this state where they become very wrapped up in something that we might find so uh, every day, like it might be a leaf of a particular colour or a particular shape or texture or a stick or, you know, just a pattern in the sand. And it, the, the bit in the book with Pippa, I think we can all relate back to from our own experiences, but we might not quite understand exactly what's happening for that child and, you know, what's intriguing them. Right, yes. Um, the photo is very, very graphic in my view because this is a little girl, well, she's no longer a little girl, she's about six now, but at the time the photo was taken, she was, um, I think, a, a toddler. She was probably about 18 months old and she's there near her own home in northeastern Victoria and they have the encounter. Now, what is significant, as you say, the, her posture, her gaze, uh, all are telling that she is absolutely absorbed and fascinated uh, by this creature and by the event that she's watching. Now, the intriguing thing for me is that here is a very young child spontaneously displaying this interest in a living creature. Now, that interest would have manifested in that little girl very much earlier. We have the evidence from good scientific studies that children at four months of age, and that's about a time when we can get pretty reliable indicators of where their interest is and what kind of experience they're having. We know that from that stage in life, children uh, are displaying a preferential interest in living things as opposed to non-living. In yeah. other words, if you present children with um, a creature or even an animated creature, um, a not real one, one that's simply animated, and alongside uh, a conventional toy, we can tell by the movements of the child, by the vocalising, by the turning of the where the eyes are fixing, which of those sorts of experiences are capturing them. And so we've got pretty strong evidence. Children have, it seems, an inbuilt disposition to respond to nature. And this is one of the scientific elements, one of the avenues of investigation and research and evidence that's bringing home to us the idea that we humans are born with an innate disposition to be interested in and emotionally affiliated with nature. And that's why I chose that early, to present that picture early on and to talk about it, because it embodies a reality about the uh, human uh, nature, which is very important for us to acknowledge, and that's simply that we have a profound uh, inclination to uh, reach out to nature and to benefit from doing so. Yeah, I think that builds into a question that I've been very intrigued about, and that is children, as you as you've said, they are extremely interested by nature, and I see that every day in my uh, daughter Layla, 
anything that's alive or moving or even just a picture of an animal in a book is very fascinating. However, at the same time, the video screen, if the television's switched on or if she sees a um, phone around, um, she's also inquisitive in that. However, which most kids are, they're very inquisitive about technology. However, as soon as the natural world becomes an offer for Layla, who's now two, she will take it outside, she will take playing with the dogs over the video and the phones and that kind of thing. However, it doesn't seem, from my observations, and I might be wrong, it doesn't seem to stay that way for long. It seems to me that the kids I'm exposed to, as they become older and older, they tend to spend more time or prefer to spend time in front of the TV or inside at a PlayStation, iPad, what have you, rather than going outside in nature. Can you speak to why this nature this you know, uh, passion and intrigue with nature does seem to dissipate a little from you know, what we see in small children? Well, the, the question is, the, um, what I was describing in, the, in, in, in well, what we were watching in Pippa and what we see in, in infancy and younger than her is um, evidence of what I call the biased brain. Our brain is not um, a blank slate, so to speak, at birth. Far from it. Our brains have been shaped by evolution to be preferentially responsive to different aspects of experience. Now, we well know that little children are very responsive to social stimulation. They are, even from the first hours of life, they are picking up social cues and very soon they get learn to chuck a smile or they spontaneously smile because this engages their caregivers into protective and supportive behavior. You can see that it has a very obvious adaptive survival response, uh, purpose. Yeah. So we have the brain is biased then to facilitate uh, interacting with others learning language and influencing others through our facial and bodily gestures. A second bias is what I call is the nature bias. That the, the, the child, given that our species evolved for the natural world, it just makes obvious sense that our brains were um, evolved to be uh, usefully responsive to the natural world or be responsive to the natural world in a way that would support survival. And as I said, um, one of the ways is to have an interest in the natural world. Another is to be emotionally connected with it in such a way that we learn uh, quite quickly what things to fear in nature, what things to enjoy, all of this um, is part of the way nature has fashioned us to take our place as wild creatures. Yeah. We have only been urbanized and civilized in inverted commas for, what, 12,000 years. And it's just not long enough to have uh, allowed major evolutionary changes. So we, despite all the sophistication that we think we might 
um, display in our behaviour and in what, how we live, the fact is that we are still, as Charles Darwin said, wild creatures. We belong to a wild species. Now, one of the byproducts of evolving as we have is to have a highly um, uh, adaptable, a highly receptive brain. And it's just receptive to stimuli of any kind. And the fact that we've now moved into a world that has other exciting things as well as natural features, it just follows that children are going to be caught up with uh, vivid stimulation that comes through screens and, um, and principally through screens. Yeah. So it's a competition. We are finding that the, the electronic world is now competing with the child's attention. And it's a very accessible world, and children find it very competing, com convenient to be entertained by it, as do adults. It takes much, it's much easier to go and switch on the television and go and do a or with or the computer and just um, go and do some net surfing. Then perhaps go outside and to in and to uh, play around in the garden a little bit to just sit and enjoy the sun. You see what I mean? And this tendency of the uh, of, of urban humans, particularly, to divert their attention from the natural world into the world of the um, electronic world is. A matter of concern to a great many people. In fact, someone are talking about um, us being in a state of videophilia, or which is to say, having a great love for electronic video delivered sort of stimulation. Now, that's a very cute uh, term because it's it competes with the other term about which I was began to talk. Uh, I didn't use the word, but I can now. Uh, biophilia. This is the love of nature. Now, the picture of young Pippa watching the living creature is just an example of this tendency that is built into us all to desire a connection with nature, to desire to be engaged with nature. Biophilia it literally means love of living or love of life. So, what's happening in our world? is that videophilia is beginning to displace biophilia, and that is to our detriment. The evidence is now mounting that we must be very aware that this is not a good thing to be happening. Now, I'm not saying that the world of, I'm not saying the world of um, uh, the computer and the television is necessarily evil and bad. I'm saying it has to be um, engaged in a balanced way, and I think you'll find most of the pundits who talk about children's development and indeed about human welfare generally are talking about balance. Yeah. Now, I guess Les, the video filia... Sorry, go, Jess. Carry on. Les, sorry. Les, just, um, look, just on that, uh, obviously, I'm a parent, Brett's a parent. Brett, Brett mentioned the experiences that I was having at the moment at her age, and I remember my boy was nine, nine years old now. Um, and I look, and I fondly remember those times when we, we were living out in the central desert, also. And my boy was having similar experiences. He's nine now. He is 
gravitating more and more towards desktop computers, iPads, iPhones. You know, he is he is very attracted to that technology platform, and and I see that videophilia trait in him. What are some of the things that we can ensure that we do? Some practical tips, Les, that may be able to sort of, um, I guess, counteract that that attraction to geophilia and and uh, in turn enhance uh, uh, the, the stimulating the biophilia. Okay. Well, the uh, children are very responsible. Sorry, responsive to models. Models, uh, that is, behavioural models. So a very important thing is for parents and grandparents and so many grandparents looking at the young children these days to be asking themselves, are they modelling engagement with nature? Are they themselves getting out and letting their children see them getting out and enjoying the nature that might be in their backyard? Are they making a point of getting kids to any green space that might be nearby in the neighbourhood? Are they going out of the way to ensure that the kids have vacations where they do get away from their computers and things and their wretched mobile phones these days and discover nature as a playground? So that's, and more than that, that when they're out there, that they are modelling a genuine interest and excitement in the natural world. So the first thing I'd, I'd say would be um, is to make use of the power of modelling. Having said that, I recognise it's not easy because the accessing the, um, the, the electronic world and electronic entertainment is so easy. You turn on a switch. A very interesting book which everybody should read is by Richard Louvre called The Last Child in the Woods. And he writes, um, has written a landmark book which has caught the attention of millions around the world in which he describes the trend that you have just been talking about, the drift from nature indoors, as it were. And in, one, in, in the book, he quotes a little boy in the equivalent of our fourth class. In answer to the question, where does he, would he rather play? He says, oh, I'd rather play indoors because that's where all the PowerPoints are. <laughs> you get the point? Yeah. Now, well, we have to think very carefully about now about what sort of um, physical environments we're letting our kids grow up in. Many kids have, we still have houses with gardens, but a problem that um, uh, I think many parents have is that even the garden is seen to be potentially a hostile place. Parents are very conscious, it seems, of dangers. And uh, whereas in my day, a parent would say, well, go out and play, and make sure you're back by tea time, meaning that I could go and roam wildly and widely in my, um, my as it happened, semi-rural habitat. So I just naturally played in natural situations, but nowadays parents are very reluctant to do that. 
they are very now. I'm getting around to a point, a second point to make. What parents also find themselves doing is hovering, becoming helicopter-like. We're talking about helicopter parenting, feeling that they've got to control almost all of their children's leisure life. And in addition to this playing in front of the television or in sitting in getting your entertainment from uh, uh, electronically, where parents are unwittingly disrupting children's development by structuring their leisure, having them go and play organised sport, going off and doing their ballet, um, doing uh, learning some other skills because they think if they don't do this and the, the kids are going to miss out. So the evidence is overwhelming that children now no longer uh, play beyond a very limited territory. They are much more likely to be supervised by adults in their leisure activities. And what has been the casualty is what uh, is called free play. Uh, this is the kind of play where kids can just get out there and muck around themselves. And the incentive to free play, which interestingly children do enjoy when they get a chance to do, it's not as if kids are turned off playing in the natural environment. It's just that it's become more convenient and more uh, a thing. It's more cool play indoors. Yeah. But we now have to think about how can I encourage my kids to just go out there, not be surrounded by all sorts of um, warnings, but still being supervised, but as it were, not obtrusively, so that the kid is sensing, uh, getting a sense of being able to organise their own entertainment, to begin to investigate the possibilities of sand, soil, rock, bushes, trees, etc. You're seeing what I'm getting at? So yeah, the I point guess. to sum up then is to think, am I letting my child have the benefit of free play? And uh, if you want more about that, I, I, there's, there's a lot more to be said about that in terms of children's physical health as well as their mental health. Jason, I guess you and I, we live in remote Indigenous communities and we get to see the benefits of free play and that um, the, the ability that the kids have to just go out, of, you know, be in the community, kick a football, throw rocks and have that free play. And it always stumps me when I come back to, you know, a Western setting, Sydney, Newcastle, Melbourne, Brisbane, wherever it may be. Things as simple as um, I might give a five-year-old a knife to cut an orange um, or a four-year-old a knife to cut an orange, which in our world, they have the fine motor skills, they understand what a sharp object is and they are more than capable of cutting a sharp orange. Um, you notice that in the independence of the children out here, if you ask a kid to, you know, you can give them more complex instructions out in community which they can follow. You could give them a three-step process like, uh, say, go over to this person, ask for a, a container of Vegemite, bring it back and put Vegemite on the sandwiches. And from, a, you know, from an age of five, I'd expect these kids out here to be able to follow that and do it as long as they weren't, as long, you know, listening to me. 
that shouldn't be a problem for them. And the other point that I always get caught up on is a lot of my job is um, recreation and sport. So I'm kicking footballs around with kids of all ages all the time. And I go back to New Newcastle and if I'm not careful, I'll hurt kids because I'll kick a football at them that I expect them to be able to catch easily. And they're running away from it. They don't know what's going on. And it's really amusing, the developmental gap in kids, say between four and eight in Western in our Western world compared to these Indigenous communities. Have you found the same, Jason? Well, I've found the exact same thing. You, you, you know, you, you touch on the point, though, is that free, like how, you know, instrumentally important free players. And I... I grew up in a semi-rural area too, and I had the, the, the pleasure of free play, and my parents were pretty much the same. As long as I touched base at lunchtime and made sure, I'm sure I was home at dark, we could go anywhere. We could do anything. We, we, we swam in dams. We caught turtles. We you know, caught nappies. We went fishing. We, we rode our bikes ridiculous distances. We were amongst it. Um, and you see that in communities. We've worked in... You know, the central desert, East Arnhem Land, and, and now quite extensively in, in, across Cape York. And you see, you know, the local indigenous community life is is pretty much all free play all the time. And you see, I guess, the, the leaps and bounds in development from, I guess, some of the local community youth, um, how much more spatially aware they are, um, how, you know, their, their, their ability to, to climb and navigate and, you know, their raw athletic talent when it comes to sport. And, you know, all of that is because from a very young age, they're able to sort of self-explore and they're able to entertain some free play and they're, they're all the better for it. Um, and they and again, on, um, on health benefits and that of free play. Jason, how many kids do you know in your community that have asthma or an allergy? Oh, I wouldn't know of any here. And that's the same here. When um, we had a first aid course, they said to us, you know, what's your anaphylaxis plan and what's your um, nut allergy plan and that kind of stuff. And we thought to the first aid train when he came here, we said, we don't have that out here. And he thought we were ridiculous and naive. And he said, all right, then, well, let's do it. Let's investigate this more. So he marched our group down to the clinic and said to the clinic manager, how many people here in Docker River have asthma? And she looked at him and said, none. And he said, oh, what about nut allergies and allergies to foods? And again, she said, none that we're aware of, <laughs> which he found, you know, astonishing. Whether it's the free play, I'm sure it's more than just free play. I'm sure it's a combination of things, but that's free play. What, what, what you're probably observing is the fact that through free play in natural settings, children are being exposed to a wider range of um, allergens, microbes and uh, other um, violators of the body and their bodies are getting a chance to develop immunities to these things. So this is uh, quite a strong theory in medicine now that the the rise in allerg uh, allergic illnesses can be put down to um, us, frankly, making our environments too sanitised, and that it's not in the interest of children to quarantine them 
from what one might call just the natural free-floating hazards that are in the natural environment because by responding to that, their immune systems are being educated. But um, um, we've talked a little bit, I guess, about the health outcomes, you know, from this free play and this connection with nature. What other things, Les, are you seeing as a direct result in this drop-off of biophilia and videophilia and the increase of the videophilia? phenomenon. For me of particular interest as someone who has suffered with a bit of anxiety and that in the past and being connected with a lot of people who suffer a wide range of mental illness is this mental illness situation. Are there any links, is there any theories behind mental ill, um, you know, mental health dramas and the reduction to our connection with nature and what other, you know, outcomes are we seeing from this reduction of our connection with nature? All right, then let me slide away from the one about mental health. Let me just yeah. underscore um, the physical side for a moment or return to that. We already have very alarming evidence that as a consequence of not going outdoors and engaging in large muscle group activity, running, climbing, leaping, balancing, uh, then coupling that with fine, uh, fine motor activity involved in picking and modelling and shaping and so on. But more particularly in relationship to the, uh, the basic movement abilities, that's, the, that's to say strength, coordination, flexibility, we have an alarming decline in those aspects of across Australian children. Alarming decline. So much so that when in, they're a little older and they want to take part in sports or when parents are becoming anxious about the child's overweight and want them to become more active, they are lacking the motor elements essential for complex games and things that might sustain their, um, their activity through later childhood and adolescence. Are you yeah, seeing the so point I'm making? It's not just yeah. simply a case of, well, we can turn on activity when kids are a bit older unless they are, are getting, letting those bodies um, engage with the environment and meet the demands of the environment Think about balance. Think about pulling themselves up as they climb a bit of a tree. Think about the way they learn to cushion a fall as they jump from something. Think about rolling down a hill. All of these things are laying the foundations for the uh, for more sophisticated activity that we see in, in various sorts of sports. Yeah, and uh, a simple example. Just a simple, many people who are engaged in taking kids out in the bushland for the first time are finding that they have trouble with the broken surfaces. In other words, yeah. their feet haven't adapted to other than a very smooth and predictable surface. So that's just one simple illustration of the point I'm making. Okay, so, so I've already referred to overweight. Yes, we are linking the diminution of free play and play in nature to obesity and indeed the early onset of cardiovascular diseases. Now that's alarming 
I'm talking about children up to tender age of six, seven, eight, nine. You're seeing early stage uh, arteriosclerosis of the kind that uh, we, we were once seeing much later in life. Now, in terms of mental health, uh, interesting one. One of the big concerns we have is that we are cocooning our kids. We are bubble wrapping them. We're, and in doing that, we're not letting them take controlled risks. And as a consequence, when they encounter uncertainties in life, as inevitably they will as they grow up and grow out into their peer group and beyond, they are finding themselves stranded because they haven't learned that you can deal with uncertainty, you can deal with a failure, um, you just have to adjust your method, redouble your efforts or whatever it is. And above all, they haven't learned that they can manage situations that uh, might be initially challenging or even threatening to them. And this is seen to be undermining children's basic resilience. Resilience is something you learn. You learn that you can handle problematic situations. Now, if we're not letting children get out there and engage the challenges of the natural environment, and for goodness sake, I wouldn't want anybody to think I'm advocating letting children run into danger. I'm talking about responsible, supervised or controlled risk-taking activities which have a low level of risk and can be effectively you know, supervised from a distance, but which the children themselves perceive as challenging. You know, wading a creek, scrambling up a sloping rock, making a campfire, all these sorts of things, investigating a cave or an opening, little things which they think are quote-unquote adventures. Mm. You with me? Now, yeah. what's, what does it mean? If, if you then diminish children's resilience, you are leaving them less prepared for the inevitable and normal hazards of social interaction. I should have, of course, free play is also, particularly with other kids, is a great social education. That's where they learn empathy. That's where they learn to give and take. That's where they learn how to, to resolve conflicts. That's where they get an idea of their real standing in the world, not some illusion. And this also is altogether fortifying and allows them better to move into later stages in life. So summing it up, do I see a link between the upsurge in depression, anxiety disorders in adolescence and, and indeed subsequently in life and the drop in opportunities for free play? I say, well, the evidence is still to be gathered and to become conclusive, but you know, to use the jargon of science, it's a pretty powerful hypothesis that yeah. there is a connection. Yeah. Les, um, look, I, I know, well, and so great. We've got Kate Walks in my backyard. We get to go on adventures all the time in and around Kate York, and we take every opportunity to enjoy the backyard that is in front of us here. And Brett's the same in the Central Desert. Every chance, or just about every second day when I talk to Brett, he's off on another adventure and checking things out. We, look, we are, we're extremely fortunate, really. We get to sort of stimulate our 
biophilia quite extensively. We, you know, we travel regularly, we fish regularly. I, we, we camp. As a well, lot I don't fish that regularly, can. to be honest, Jason. Well, not, not, I guess, not the central desert. Um, <laughs> I guess I'm fortunate in Cape York that fishing is another sort of really um, attractive component of adventure around here. But look, I know when I'm out and about, I'm at my most settled. I don't feel anxious. I feel completely relaxed. I feel healed in a sense. Um, you know, there's a lot of our listeners out there that may be a little stuck with this. You know, it might it might be their place of living, which may not be as conducive for their lifestyle. I mean, there might be it might be their circle of friends that don't get out much. It could be their place of work. They might live in in town, so they get in their car and they live in an apartment complex and they drive to their you know skyscraper building where they where they sort of live and breathe an indoor lifestyle and an indoor profession. What are, what are some of the things that we all could incorporate into our lives, and particularly people that I guess aren't as fortunate as myself, where we've got, you know, our backyard um, being sort of national parks and sort of these, you know, these great um, expansive areas of nature. What are some of the things that other people could include in their lifestyle that um, I guess aren't as fortunate enough, you know, that would assist them in creating a happier and healthier existence? Well, you know, uh, you're talking on behalf of 50% of the world's population because over 50% of the world's population now live in uh, cities and towns. Sure. So, um, and that's going to, uh, predictions are that that will be up to closer to 70% by mid-century. So the reality is that uh, many of the people, most indeed, people possibly listening to this, are in cities and towns and they could well be saying, oh, goodness me, it's all right for these people to be talking about interacting with nature. Look where I am. They could well be in uh, multi-storey apartment blocks. Um, they could be in narrow uh, suburban streets with limited land around. Well, hold that in your mind and try and uh, and let me provoke you by saying that the first theme of my book is that we have a need for nature and that if we engage that need and meet it, there are enormous benefits that flow. The second theme of my book is that there are ways of engaging for virtually everybody. Now, how can I possibly say that? Uh, we've been talking about these wonderful environments that you, you folk have, have uh, you enjoy. Well, I can start for several reasons. First, it is remarkable how little exposure to nature will bring significant benefits. Example, when I step from my suburban urban congestion into one of the natural national parks that surround my city here in Sydney, almost immediately I start humming. And it's always the same thing, but that doesn't matter. I used to be puzzled. What are you humming? I'm humming one of the uh, theme from Marb one of the, my favourite opera. Okay. And just a pleasant tune. But it happens automatically. And I puzzled about that over the years until I began to explore the science of nature and the human mind. And I discovered one of the most powerful findings is 
that the once we expose ourselves to greenery and to even just a small patch of garden nature in a in, in a suburban park in your own nice garden if you're lucky enough to have one in your own home there's a physiological response immediate and it is the relaxation response you blood pressure falls heart rate drops stress hormones drop and you you feel better immediately now the amazing thing is that can happen in um, a patch of urban greenery just as much as it can happen uh, in uh, you know Barracoon or wherever else or in the in the national park so that's the first thing and there are many there are a number of other immediate responses um, just to take another illustration it's now established that moving water always around moving water the air the composition of the air changes. I don't want to get too physics or too too complicated about this, but it what it amounts to is this and perhaps I can make the point by asking people just to recall how they feel when there's a hot and dry wind blowing. If you notice how you feel unsettled, kids are often ratty and indeed in some parts of the world where winds of this nature are very can blow for several days, you get quite serious mental disruption and social disorders, suicide rates and crime rates climb and so on. The reason it's thought is that the the balance of the electricity in the air changes. There are physicists will tell us that when moving water or moving when there's moving water or moving air, electrons get stripped away from the atoms and this leads to uh, changes in the uh, in, in, in the electrical properties of the air around. Now, around waterfalls, around moving water, even under the shower, there, there is a preponderance of negatively, negative air, you might say. And that is much more refreshing, much more beneficial for us than air that is loaded with these positive particles. 